Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Uh, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I'm the host of Grey Malkin Lane, and we are taking a break from our normal format of interviewing professionals and reviewing old comic books with them to do a massive trial. Now, we've done three trials on the Grey Malkin Lane podcast so far for Professor X and for Beast and for Scarlet Witch. Uh, for Juggernaut, we had to switch up our format a little bit because, frankly, almost everything this man has ever done is a crime. <laughs> so we had to, we had to wow, make our prejudicial, prejudicial. <laughs> <laughs> we had to make our presentation a little bit more robust, and we have a nine-person jury of incredible podcasters and artists and professionals and writers. Uh, and I am uh, fangirling out on the inside as we all sit down together this afternoon. So thank you for everyone who's here for uh, your willingness to uh, give up a Saturday afternoon. And uh, this will be really, really exciting. So uh, as we do introductions, uh, we're just gonna go in alphabetical order today. I'm gonna start by having everybody just kind of share what is your favorite Juggernaut story and what is it you love about the Juggernaut? Uh, as you introduce yourself, please feel free to, pe to tell people, uh, you know, who you are and what you do and, uh, and let us know your gender pronouns, of course. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, begin with Andre. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Andre. I am a <laughs> lifelong X-Men fan with my very first uh, uncanny issue, which was 224 right before the fall of mutants back in the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, found it in a 7-Eleven going to get a Batman issue. Needless to say, I did not get that Batman issue when I got the X-Men one. Um, so very excited to be here. Um, there's not much to know about me, just the fact that I'm a super fan. I have nothing to plug, but just happy to be here. And do you have a favorite Juggernaut story or what do you love about the Juggernaut most? Uh, you know what? I don't have a particular favorite story. I do have a favorite era of his, um, was when uh, he became very much a an X-Men for a very short amount of time on the run that we all collectively hate. Yes, on, on that on that particular one, I think that was when I liked him the most. Um, and what I do like about Juggernaut himself, because I call him Juggy because I feel like I have a nice little um, connection with him because he is always the underdog that always has the ability to knock over buildings, but never have the same emotional strength to do what needs to be done mm -hmm. so um i think that we all kind of relate to that in some form that he will do the things that are necessary what he thinks is the best interest for everyone he loves so that's what i enjoy the most about juggernaut fantastic uh let's have anthony go next oh i did not expect that uh sooner <laughs> in the alphabet than i expected hi <laughs> uh, uh what am i supposed to say i'm anthony Oliveira. uh any pronouns mm -hmm. fine uh, I'm a writer, uh, comics, prose, etc. I don't know what I'm plugging right now. I don't know. Uh, something. <laughs> Follow me on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, what else to say? My favorite Juggernaut story? What do you love about the Juggernaut? And do you have what a favorite I... Juggernaut story? Yeah. I love a few. I love the one where he's fighting Spider-Man in the concrete. That's a good one. Um, mm -hmm. I have some new favorites after doing some deep dives into issues I have never seen before for this. Um... I also really like during the Onslaught stuff where Xavier is now Onslaught and is, I mean, asterisk, it's complicated. Um, never mind. Uh, and he's just, <laughs> he's just fully bullying Kane for like issues at mm -hmm. a time because he's finally got the mass to beat him up. Um, that's a lot of fun. And, and Kane has no idea what's going on. So that's one of my favorites. Uh, what do I love about him? I love... My favorite thing about Juggernaut is the way he encapsulates a very specific crisis of masculinity that I, as a person who went to a very fratty, sporty, all-boys Catholic school, recognize quite well. Um, he is, as much as he is trapped by the curse of the gem, he's also sort of trapped by this expectation of what it means to be a man that I think intersects in fast, I'm sure we're going to talk about this, fascinating ways mm. with the like more queer dimensions to his story, especially once Claremont gets his hands on him. Um, 
And I just love the idea of this like big bruiser who just wants someone to be nice to him, which I think is the the sad tragedy of Kane Marco. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Arturo. Hi, uh, I'm Arturo. Um, he, him pronouns. Uh, you know, Chuck Austin <laughs> was a, a rough run. <laughs> There's a lot to, to criticize about that run, but I loved that era of, of Juggernaut being, uh, you know, getting reformed a little bit and trying to work with the X-Men and being like a big brother to uh, the Squid Boy or what's his name? Fish Kid, whatever. Sammy. Sammy Sammy Squid Boy. Sorry. Sammy Squid Boy. Um, Yeah, I just... Juggernaut kind of always reminds me of, and this isn't this isn't this doesn't say anything good or healthy, I think, but kind of like that bully who gave you shit in high school, but you still had a crush on him. Right. That's kind of Juggernaut in a nutshell for me. And it's now problematic. You see it, his torso on Grinder all the time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, it's uh, he's problematic, but I think at the end of the day, yes, he's a criminal, but he's not necessarily evil. At best, he's usually selfish. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see what is coming down the road for Juggernaut. Awesome. Uh, Bethany. Oh, hi. Um, I'm Bethany. Um, it's 6 a.m. where I am. I live in China, so I'm just barely coherent, but I expect I'll become more so as the day progresses. Um <laughs> I'm a novelist. Um, my latest novel just came out with Parthian, uh, The Hungry and the Lost. So if you like Southern Gothic and, you know, environmental stuff, you know, maybe you'll enjoy it. Um, I'm a fencer. Um, I already said I live in China. My favorite juggernaut story is actually the first X-Men comic that I ever read. And that's um, Uncanny X-Men number 183, which we're going to be covering today. Uh, somebody else's. <coughs> um, I read it for the first time when I was 12 years old. Um, my background's a little unusual, so I was in a children's home, an orphanage in South Carolina, and someone brought it into the recycling plant, and I found this stack of comics, which I now realize are probably worth a lot of money, that someone was just recycling, and dug them up, read it, fell in love, um, especially with Nightcrawler, um, but that was really, it was a really good issue to see just Juggernaut and Colossus just belting away at each other, um, and... It was really appealing. I loved I loved it, and I still do. Um, I think the best thing about Juggernaut as a character is his cowardice. And I think it's one of those, like, it's a, almost a cliche. You've got the really big bully guy who's just a scared little kid inside of, of himself. Um, but the imagery of the comics keeps going back to that. Whenever Xavier is inside his head, he's in his childhood home, and Kane Marco is a little boy. And I really, there's something, there's something very true about that, seeing um, this big, terrifying man who's really just a frightened, scared um, coward. And so many, so many of his stories revolve around him trying to, um, trying to fight past his own fear. And I, I really like that. It really resonated with me. Beautiful. Thank you. Bradley. Uh, hi, my name is Bradley. I am an illustrator. Um, they, them. I, um, oh, I sorry, probably... they, them too. Oh, oh. sorry. <laughs> I forgot to say my You're friend. good. You're, you're good. <laughs> sorry. Um, sorry. Uh, I would probably also say the Chuck Austin runs a real high point for Kane Marco and Kane Marco alone. Uh, <laughs> that man owes a lot of people, specifically Husk, blood. Uh, but uh, it's a great, it's a great time for Juggernaut. Um, and um, what is my favorite thing about him? Um, like a lot of my other favorite ex villains, um, he doesn't treat be gay, do crimes as a hollow slogan. It's how he lives, <laughs> and I love that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. Uh, oh, as far as, uh, as I'm an illustrator, I have a deck of literary tarot cards coming out, I don't know, soon. Um, I'm not in charge of any of that. Uh, but <laughs> um, yeah, I make comics, all that kind of stuff. Beautiful, man. Thanks. Uh, I'll go next. My name is Chad. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I started picking up comics when I was a 
troubled teen, not troubled as in acting out, but troubled as in things at home were shitty and comics were my escape. And I started in Fabian Nicieza's X-Force run. And my first juggernaut story was that World Trade Center story we'll cover today where he felt like this insane, formidable threat. And I was so like, whoa, this is like the Hulk for the X-Men kind of a response. <laughs> Um, I've always I've always found him to be a very credible villain, uh, but as I did the very extensive research for today's trial, what I've learned to love about him, I think, are his contradictions. He is both hero and villain. He is both strong and weak. He is kind of all things. He needs everything and nothing. Uh, he needs no one, but also holds people close. I think there's a lot of really fascinating contradictions about him that I have learned to love about the character. Um, as I did my research, I was like, how is anyone still letting this guy be a hero? And why does he even try? But as you kind of look <laughs> through the complexities of character, it was fun to find his motivations. Uh, so let's have Noel go next. All right, I'm Noel, um, host of the X-Men Unraveled podcast. Um, my favorite juggernaut story has always stayed his first appearance, um, showing up at the mansion and terrorizing everyone. Um, I really enjoy the fact that, um, you know, surface level, he just seems like a giant bully just there to cause problems. But there's, he's a good way to look at, you know, people's pain behind why they do things. And so that's something that I've um, just enjoyed reading more about, um, getting ready for today. Um, when you first said it was the trial of King Marco, I was like, well, what is there to talk about? It's juggernaut but um you know getting to understand more of what's behind him and what he does beyond um you know just that history with charles and savior has been really fun it's very complicated uh and then leah go next please uh hi my name is leah williams pronouns she her and uh, i'm a marvel comics writer and i think my favorite uh, juggernaut story is newly Punisher Kill Crew. I have an extreme appreciation for it. And I, I just want to say as the person who read the most recent juggernaut appearances, like my client is innocent. He is good now. <laughs> I, I'm going to go to bat for him for not being a bad guy anymore. Um, he is a, a champion of, of like lost children and orphans now. And I love it. I, I think it's great. And I think that it, you know, absolutely ties into what Bethany was talking about with, um, you know, his like inner child being a, a motif throughout the years. Like now he's finding a more constructive way of dealing with that um, through destruction. And it's, it's pretty glorious. <laughs> Lovely. And finally, Tristan. Hello, my name is Tristan Palmgren, they, them pronouns. Uh, I am a writer. Um, I write novels, uh, science fiction and fantasy novels, and I also write uh, novels for Marvel. Um, most recently, uh, Domino Strays and Outlaw Relentless. I also have um, books about a, um, a book about uh, an, uh, Anoli and Elixir coming out this May, and I am extremely privileged to be able to write Squirrel Girl Universe, um, a novel that, that should hopefully be coming out later this summer. Um, my, fav um, my favorite thing about Juggernaut is the places where he's not acting like a stereotypical bully, even in, in, um, in settings where you might expect him to. Um, one thing that's consistent in his, even in his earliest stories is that he does not pick fights with people who, um, who could just kind of leave him on it to go on his path of destruction. He's not interested in fighting superheroes for the sake of fighting superheroes. There are several times when he comes across, um, you know, like Wolverine in a bar and says, are we doing this? Are we fighting? And they say no. And he says, okay, that's cool. And just kind of, just, you know, kind of goes, it's, it's, it's part of, it's part of his code. He, he sees himself as leaving other people alone um, until they, they do something to him. Um, he has a, a, a poor sense of property damage and um, we'll be getting into that later on in the trial. Now, my favorite story is, though it has its problems, it's one of the ones I read for um, on assignment for, for this podcast. It's Marvel Team Up 150, when the plot of that story is kicked off by him 
just wanting to get a birthday present for his Aww. best friend, Black Tom Cassidy. Uh, and that's that's the big emotional arc of it. And at the end of it, um, both he and Tom come to just a greater mutual understanding and respect for each other and see more of the world from each other's perspectives um, after having left much of New York and ruins around them. And it, it's, it's very sweet um, within that very narrow, um, that that very narrow lens if you if you if you ignore all of the smoldering wreckage or, uh, around them <laughs> uh arturo you had something you wanted to say oh yeah uh just a just a little bit intro on myself uh i'm arturo i'm uh, one of the podcasters on x's for podcasts and yeah just a lifelong x-men fan and uh amateur action figure photography uh at mr toy box on on twitter and instagram I was so flustered from the technical difficulties that I, I just breezed right over that stuff. No, that's completely okay. Uh, we have a lot of uh, talent and smarts and passion uh, assembled here. And I am, I'm so astounded uh, at, at all of you. I'm so happy you're here. Uh, so as we format the trial today, we're going to spend just a couple of minutes talking about Juggernaut's past, kind of setting up his, his comic book history, if you will. It's needless to say, but we'll mention for just for the purpose, this is a character created by Stanley and Jack Kirby to face the X-Men, who has now been around for decades. Writers pick him up and they dust him off and they do new things. And we as readers get to stack all of that up in one long line of history that takes place in, you know, 55 years for us, but it's only, you know, 10 or 12 years for a character. Uh, every writer that gets a new idea, we try to make sense of it and put it into the continuity and in today's podcast, <clears throat> we're going to try to put all of that in order. Each of the nine of us that's been assigned, or excuse me, each of the nine of us that are here has been assigned a section of his history, and we're going to be voting on the criminality by section, not by crime. Otherwise, it would be like 700 votes, because <laughs> he's, he's a fitter, a lot of them. <laughs> uh, so we're going to have nine separate voting blocks uh, after each of us do a presentation. In the past, when we put the heroes on trial, we'll usually hold them accountable for five or six things that they've done, you know, pretty majorly wrong. But in this case, we're going to do sections of history. Not everything will be covered comprehensively. There's more to this character than we could spend time on, but uh, but we're going to cover it as comprehensively as we can. And I'm super excited about it. So we're going to start with uh, a presentation of his history. We're going to have some discussions about his psychology, what we love about him, and just kind of nerd out about him a bit of it. And then we will uh, transition over to the trial. Uh, so let me just introduce, and I'm going to keep this as brief as possible. These are the things that happened to him before the trial starts, if you will. <laughs> and there's a little bit of a complicated history because Marvel has, you know, gods in other dimensions, etc. So let me read this part out loud. Hundreds of years ago, the extra dimensional and immensely powerful Citrac. How do you guys pronounce that? Citrac? Citrac. Citrac. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I always, I always wonder if it sounds the same out loud as it does in my head. Uh, the immensely powerful Citrac developed a stronghold on Earth, and temples were built in his honor, one of which was in the land that would come to be known as Korea. In time, Citrac was banished back to his home dimension. Citrac entered a competition called the Wager of the Octessence with other extra-dimensional entities of power, including Watum, Valtour, Balfak, Ferala, Icon, Kraken, and Ragador, uh, basically, these are all entities that Doctor Strange uses in rhyming spells. <laughs> That's what they all have in common. <clears throat> and they wanted to determine which of them was the most powerful among them. So they each agreed to leave an artifact on Earth that would turn a mortal into a powerful being if they grabbed that artifact. Uh, they would then seek to conquer all of humanity through this mortal or their avatars. Uh, whichever, the, whichever of their mortal, mortal avatars conquered the Earth would be proclaimed the winner of the uh, competition. So in the temple in Korea, Citrac placed the mystic crimson gem that would empower whoever picked it up as his avatar of rage on earth, which would then give Citrac influence over or sometimes even control over the avatar. Uh, mystics created the powerful Zorak, who's a weird little demon guy to guard the gem. Uh, but the ancient one, who is the sorcerer supreme and the trainer of Dr. Strange, uh, defeated Zorak, which left the gem unguarded for many years. Now, years later, Cain Marco grew up with his parents, Kurt and Marjorie, but they separated and his mother died. Kurt worked as a scientist at Alamogordo, which is uh, a real place where they developed uh, crazy technology. 
uh, and it ties into Professor X's origins. Uh, Kurt Marco was indirectly responsible for the death of his colleague, Brian Xavier, and he soon began courting Brian's widow, Sharon Xavier, who was very wealthy, and Kurt moved into her home, which would later become the X-Men's mansion in Westchester County, New York, bringing with him his son, Kane. Uh, Kane grew immediately jealous of his new stepbrother, Charles Xavier. In their first meeting, he literally slapped him across the face and laughed at us, <laughs> laughed at him. So there's a rivalry that started right from their early childhoods. Uh, Sharon died due to issues related to alcoholism, which left both Kurt and Kane without mothers. I'm sorry, both Charles and Kane without mothers. <laughs> uh, Kurt Marco seemed to favor his stepson Charles to his own son, Kane, who he regularly beat up, although he was abusive toward Charles as well. On one occasion, Charles's mutant power of telepathy activated and he found himself inside Kane's mind while Kurt beat his son. And this was a fact that Kane remembered and it humiliated him. Kane was aware growing up that Charles was regularly reading his mind. Kane sometimes tortured and killed animals for fun. In time, Kane confronted Kurt, his father, knowing that Kurt had been partially responsible for Brian Xavier's death. And during the fight, Kane threw some chemicals at the wall in anger, which resulted in an explosion. And Kurt died, leaving both Charles and Kane as orphans. But as he died, he asked Charles for forgiveness. For, the hand, for his hand in the death of Brian Xavier. And he told Charles to keep his powers a secret from Cain. So Cain witnesses the last words of his father being directed toward his hated stepbrother. And he developed a lifelong obsession with Charles Xavier. Now, as an adult, Cain briefly worked as a mercenary. He ended up in jail. In time, he enlisted in the military and he served in the conflicts in Korea uh, with Charles ending up in the same military unit ed, as him. During one massive conflict, Kane abandoned his unit and fled into a, a cave where he found an ancient statue holding this crimson gem of Citrac. He picked it up and read the inscription, whosoever touches this gem shall possess the crimson bands of Citrac. Henceforth, you, you who read these words shall become forevermore a human juggernaut. Kane physically transformed into the juggernaut, uh, surrounding him with massive armor and his iconic dome helmet, uh, he gained massive strength, bulk, and endurance, and uh, the armor could be manifested at will. He no longer needed to eat or sleep or breathe or, or consume oxygen or air. Uh, <laughs> the temple collapsed all around Cain as Charles escaped, and Cain was trapped there for years, possibly decades. Uh, over the course of these years, he slowly dug his way to freedom, wanting nothing more than to get revenge on his hated stepbrother who had abandoned him. Xavier later would admit to him that he willingly left Kane there and was just kind of glad to be rid of him for all that time. Now, under the influence of Citrac in the following years, uh, it, well, the first thing he did was kill Jin Tycho, which we will put him on trial for today, uh, who was the previous Innocent. man, who was the previous man to wield the Juggernaut's power. Then he slaughtered everyone in Tycho's village. He then went on a long life of crime, generally seeking leisure or profit or revenge. He's attacked the X-Men many times over the years, sometimes seeking to kill Professor X and his new family for his own revenge schemes, and sometimes because he's been hired by someone else to do so. He's fought lots of heroes, including Doctor Strange and Spider-Man and Thor and the Hulk. He's generally defeated in one of two ways. Either they get his helmet off, which is no easy task, or it shouldn't be at least, leaving him <laughs> vulnerable to psychic attack or he ends up stuck or trapped somewhere. They bury him in cement or launch him into space or banish him to another dimension. <laughs> Early in his career, he met his closest friend, and I did use air quotes there, uh, Tom Cassidy, who's the Irish mutant mercenary known as Black Tom. Uh, this unlikely pair has gone on to commit a lot of crimes together. Sometimes people are intuiting a romantic relationship between them. We will definitely talk about that today. Kane has a complicated relationship with Citrac as well. He often rejects the entity, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to proclaim his own independence, but then he'll always go back to serving Citrac over and over again. He also has a complicated relationship with the X-Men, often trying to destroy them, but at times allying himself with them. And he's joined various incarnations of the team for brief periods of time, including the X-Men, the all-new Exiles, new Excalibur. Uh, he was on the Thunderbolts for a while, and most recently he has formed the team, the Unstoppables. He's done some truly terrible things over the years and sometimes doesn't seem to give a shit at all about human life or property destruction, 
But at other times, he seems full of remorse and he wants nothing more than to embrace uh, life as a hero or just kind of a simple, quiet life on his own. So he has kind of variable motivations depending on the story being told. Now I'm gonna delve into, I'm a clinical psychologist, so, or a clinical social worker. So I felt like I was writing a, like an assessment after interviewing a client as I did this next <laughs> section. <laughs> but I wrote just two paragraphs quickly on juggernaut psychology from my perspective, although all of you are welcome to disagree. So Kane Marco in my perspective is a very complicated man. He's a mix of a lot of different and complicated pieces. He's a man who grew up white and privileged, who always yearned for the love of his father, who also, his father regularly beat him, and Cain would turn that rage toward cruelty toward others, including torturing and killing animals. Cain lost his mother to an illness, he lost his stepmother to alcoholism, and he was in some part responsible for the death of his own father. He grew up with a stepbrother who seemed favored and who had incredible telepathic skills and powers as a mutant, and Cain uh, seemed to channel his rage toward Charles as motivation for or reasons for the reasons he'd done things over the years. As an adult, Kane seems to have a very complicated emotional reality. He could very likely be diagnosed with some form of sociopathy, antisocial personality disorder, uh, major rage issues, and maybe even bipolar disorder. Kane has spent large portions of his adult life with incredible power that he didn't earn. When he has that power, he gives little thought to anything but his own pleasure seemingly, he stomps through buildings, hurts civilians, destroys property, depending on the story being told. He is a being full of need, although he doesn't technically need anything. He doesn't need to eat or drink or breathe. In that way, he has in some ways become his father, adopting kind of an, if you inconvenience me, you deserve my rage mentality. He loves to yell about how unstoppable he is, but despite all his power, he's very, very stoppable. He has spent weeks and months and years buried in cement, floating in outer space, or in one case, aging into an old man while trapped in another dimension <laughs> before returning <laughs> to our reality. He's often isolated, alone, and vulnerable. He can't sit still. He always needs to be going, 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 and he prioritizes his own pleasure, along with the very few people in his life that he's loyal to. Cain does not trust many people, but when his trust is earned, when you have his loyalty, he seems to be loyal forever. At times in his life, he's chosen to both conquer alien planets or pursue a quiet life on a farm, depending on which time you're looking at. Further complicating things, Cain is tremendously afraid of losing his power, but he's also desperately needs to be liked by others. He's had periods in his life where he tries hard to fit in, goes against his instincts, and he has bouts of time where he tries or perhaps pretends to be a hero, depending on how we interpret it. But the second he does this, he starts to, or seems to lose his rage, his power will diminish. And then the one thing that he thinks stops him from being vulnerable, uh, he, he then starts to make a huge choice to go back toward his rage, to seize his power, and then ends up isolating himself from others. It's almost as if he has to choose rage and strength or vulnerability and friends. Uh, he, uh, he is alone or stoppable, being alone or stoppable is the thing he seems to be most afraid of. And so he keeps making himself strong or unstoppable, but ends up alone. It's a tragic self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's incredibly selfish because he often only seems to grieve for himself and not for anyone who's been hurt by his actions, at least in much of his history. Uh, at his very core, he seems to hate himself, but he really likes to pretend he's stronger than all of that. Well, and fuck, he makes a really great villain. <laughs> so <laughs> as I sum up some of his history and psychology, let me hear some of your thoughts or interpretations. I may be way off base. You may have very different ideas. I am open to any and all. Uh, what would you guys like to respond with? Well, I think he is very concerned with himself and often places himself first, but not exclusively. There are times when he puts the needs of others over his own. Um, and there are times when he grieves for, for other people and uh, experiences remorse for things that he, that, that he does to them once he thought he killed the Dazzler and was, mm. was, uh, <laughs> was torn, up, torn up by that and gave her a respectful burial, even though he... He was on his way somewhere else to commit some other unspecified crime. He he um, he was he was affected by that. Uh, he did the uh, the big no thing <laughs> while looking up at the sky. So that that's how you can tell. Um, he will go out of his way to do things for others that he's very close to, 
um, like Black Tom Cassidy. I think his like codependency is really interesting because he is so dependent on Black Tom and so much of his identity is tied up in pleasing Black Tom. Um, yeah, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> and I may have, I am probably missing some stories where Black Tom mistreated him, but at least in um, in the ones that yes. I tried. Black Tom mistreats um, him every which way though. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, He's that, abusive. That, like what their code, yeah, that, that, that's <laughs> yeah. exactly the point, that his codependency is such that he allowed Black Tom to basically use him in a way um, to make himself feel important and therefore allowed him to express his, his strength in ways well, that was acceptable to one person. And if anything, he was really projecting what he needed from his father onto Black Tom. Like it was a weird kind of relationship because we can also sit here for hours and talk about the queer codedness of, of Black <laughs> yeah. Tom and Duggan's relationship. But on, a, on the face of it, it was very much an emotional uh, dependency with him because no matter what the job was, no matter what he had to do, as long as he had Black Tom in his corner, he can literally do anything. It didn't matter what the yeah. task was. Other thoughts on and his- it's because I think- Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm sorry. And I, I think it's because Black Tom abuses him that he's so connected to him. Um, mm -hmm. He needs that abuse. The people who are kind to him, he treats with mistrust. So yeah. like, how long did it take him to warm up to Sammy the fish boy? Um, squid boy. And who's a child? Who's a child, by the um, way? Like, who's a child? Out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, when people are kind to him, he treats that he doesn't trust it because he's used to receiving only abuse. So he can only interpret, I think he can only interpret abuse and he mistrusts everything else. And that, that seems like to speak about how much he's internalized um, what his father was projecting onto him as mm -hmm. well as him projecting onto his father. Yeah. Which isn't the most comfortable when other people hold him at a distance. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, to that point, like, it's not the case now. I think he's worked through a lot of his trauma to come out better on the other side, or he wouldn't be in the situations and positions that he's in now, where people are looking at him as someone who is stoic enough to join a team. To mm. put into a Yeah, position I totally to agree. Yeah, to be put in a position to help other people who are either like him, uh, or in some sense of the word, just really who need help. And I think his his whole center is that he likes when someone else is broken because he gets along with them. So mm -hmm. like his relationship with a lot of other people, there was something wrong that he would spot right away that allowed him to gravitate towards them and say, hey, I know how it feels because I am also broken. Let's be friends. How come Which Kane is, is such a good bully? Because he's an empath. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's exactly what he is, though. He's he he was bullied, and then he became the bully, and it's it's just like that that cycle of abuse that it took decades for for and you know and creative writers to take the character in a different direction and, and get him to like grow a little bit beyond that. Um, mm -hmm. Is he evil? I, I don't think so. I just think he's somebody who was hurt a lot and in turn hurt people and and yeah to, to your you guys' point about uh the codependency with black tom it's not a coincidence that that was an abusive relationship and he's being manipulated but it's better than how he had been hurt in the past so it was it was good enough for him um i have one um caveat just as far as his relationship with his powers you mentioned that his powers are unearned but i i do think that that um i think in terms of mutants especially that that's sort of a lot of them just have these huge powers that they didn't necessarily like he found an item that and wasn't born with his powers necessarily but a lot of them have these weird earth-shaking powers that they i don't know didn't earn uh, and you just got to kind of deal with it. I guess he has an option not to have them, which is the difference, but. He's fought for them time and time again when he's like lost mm -hmm. his powers though. So he's had to go through, you know, 
these own trials in order to regain his powers because he doesn't know who he is without them. Oh, he hates being vulnerable. There, there's some moments in uh, in these stories where things, uh, where he's kind of where in places where he's losing his power, things touch him, and he feels things, and he hates that. It's scary to feel things, especially if you're basically just a twelve year old in a giant um, muscle suit. It's it's scary to feel things. I, I like I like that about him. It's, Anthony, what were you going to say? Uh, yeah, I was going to agree about um, the, the point about earning his powers. I have a very weird assignment for this uh, where I read the early stuff, but also the new Excalibur bit that establishes how the Crimson Ruby of Sidorak works. And there it's actually established that when you touch the gem, you have basically earned the right to fight to be the next juggernaut. Um, which is why he ends up killing that Jin Tycho, the previous juggernaut. Um, so there is a dimension to the the way the lore around the gem works. They actually did have to fight for it and can be challenged by the next person who touches the gem, right? There is a permanent, there's something permanently vulnerable about being the juggernaut for him, that it is something he will always have to keep re-earning throughout his life. Um, I find the the point about the Black Tom relationship really interesting. I do think it is ultimately not healthy. Um, but one of the things I find interesting about it is that it is kind of mutually unhealthy. The reason it's so uh, permanent and keeps reinstantiating itself to me is that they're stuck in a cycle where they each have decided they are both unforgivable. They have, I mean, they, as far as I know, they met in prison. Is that correct? Does anyone find anything that contradicted that? I mean, there's obviously something going on there, but <laughs> um, it doesn't escape my notice, for example, that Black Tom is actually the one who killed that squid boy, right? Like, mm-hmm. there is something about the fact that they keep, they have convinced each other that the only person who understands them and can give them that love is each other, right? And that's the most dangerous Fuliada possible for those two. That that's why they keep finding each other again because they're both kind of the, um, they're both in kind of a weird sibling. I know they're not really siblings, but the Black Tom and Banshee thing. They're both in this like dangerous, um, unloved category, and they've decided that they equal each other in some way that I think has been generative and bad for both of them. <laughs> So let's take a couple of minutes. Uh, I, I, uh, I indicated four key relationships for Juggernaut that I think define a lot of his character over time. Um, and let's just share our thoughts on these four different relationships for a minute. Uh, Noel, if you're willing, will you tell us your thoughts on uh, Juggernaut's relationship with his dad, Kurt? Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest one, at least in setting up who King becomes for the rest of his life and how he interacts with other people and the relationships that he built. Um, Kurt Marco was not a great father to say the least. He favored his stepson over his own biological son um, and really just contributed to the aggression that Kane already naturally um, displayed. Um, And so it really just sets him up for how he learns to interact with everyone else throughout his life, feeling unloved, feeling unworthy and not knowing how to channel that into anything other than like the aggression that is already there in him. Kurt Marco and Brian Xavier both have this tremendous impact on these huge characters in the Marvel universe, but they're really largely unexplored. Uh, I feel like there's a lot more to be explored there, but we have this archetype of the angry dad who beats his kid and never quite approves. And we're left with this man who has this psychological gap that he can never quite fill. Uh, as a result, the the legacy of, uh, of my dad didn't love me and he hurt me uh, can be really, really profound throughout someone's entire adult life. Uh, anyone else have thoughts on, on the relationship between Kurt and Kane? Well, I was I just going to... Oh, sorry. <laughs> We're all... We all have no, it's fine. Yeah. yeah, we got thoughts. Um, I was going to argue that we're left with not just one, but two men with psychological gaps because mm. obviously this has deeply affected Charles as well. And 
even though it doesn't manifest in the same way, he was not abused in exactly the same way. If Charles is a control freak. <laughs> uh, it's, it's very evident that, um, you know, it's kind of shaped his entire worldview. Mm-hmm. He's a control freak who lacks empathy um, for his brother. And it's, I think there's a gap in Kane's intelligence, like the fact that Kane is not as intelligent and um, not capable to the same extent of analyzing what's going on inside of his own head. Um, he is intelligent in his own way, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he's not, he's not Machiavellian. He's hmm. not manipulative the same way that Charles is. Um, yes. It's, it's a different kind of smarts that he has. Uh, let's go Andre, Anthony, Tristan. Um, I think the relationship that he had with his father was one of those things that I think that gives uh, his origin story a little bit of necessity. And I hate to say that because if it wasn't for that relationship, then him choosing to be the avatar, you know, for the Lord, you know, the, the Lord of the Crimson Gem in that area wouldn't have happened. I think, I mean, I hate to say that because, uh, you know, we have that you know, the cliche of the tragic hero story and you know you've got your batmans you've got you know whoever has lost their parents and whoever has lost a relative or a friend who became the superhero and then that was literally what happened with juggernaut but in reverse like he needed the power to do these things but he didn't know that that power was going to warp him in a way so like i think he needs this power to be needed but doesn't know how to execute it properly. And unfortunately, because of that relationship with his father, it becomes the foremost thought in his mind that I have this power, you need me. And therefore, just like I would be, if I was a father, I'm going to do these things for you and you better give me it back. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. It's good, yeah. Uh, Anthony, go ahead. Um, I'm, I'm interested in characters like Kane, these characters who become obsessed with putting armor on themselves. Like it's, it's a trope I find very interesting, the sort of shredderness, sort of hedgehog's dilemma of it all. And what I find interesting about, um, Kane's youth is the way that his rage is, I mean, the way that the juggernaut as mystically represented is really just a metaphor for the way he's developed psychologically. Like his rage is already his shield, his rage, especially in the early issues. It's much more than just that he has super strength. He literally has a force field um, that makes him unstoppable. His unstoppability is like mystical. Um, And that's sort of the natural extension of the way he has used his anger as a kid, like when I read this as with as generous a reading as I can manage, like this is a kid who very early recognizes his father's abusive behaviors. Um, and by the way, I think he has two abusers. He has the abuser of his father, but I think Charles Xavier is one of his abusers too. Um, because Charles, 100%. one of the horrific things about Kane's childhood is that Charles is in his mind all the time. Uh, as his powers are manifesting, Charles has not learned any of the professed manners that he doesn't even respect as an adult. But like the invasiveness of Kane's experience is really horrific to think about, um, especially in like a developing mind where we're yeah. talking about a brain that has not matured yet. Can you imagine having an interloper in there poking around and belittling you? Oh, exactly. My God. This <laughs> surveilled like the little shit that is Charles Xavier constantly poking and prodding and assessing and deciding Xavier's unkindness to Cain really matters to me anyway. um, But the point is this personality becomes his defense, right? Like, and I do think there is a kind of juvenile nobility to it that when he enters, when this terrible toxic relationship with his father grows to include two more people, I don't think it's an accident in the text that Cain begins acting out more because I do think there's actually a a protective dimension to that. He draws fire, right? Like Charles, even Charles, the most 
jaundiced eye assessing the situation, looks at their relationship and says, I caught some abuse, but mostly it was Kane. And I don't think that's an accident. I do think Kane, as you said, the first thing he does when he meets Charles is slap him. Um, and it's one hit, but it means Kurt Marco's attention is now on Kane instead of on Charles. And I do think mm-hmm. everything that follows after that, up to and including putting on a silly little hat and smashing buildings mm-hmm. and crossing seas, is really a manifestation of that the only way I'll be safe is to be angry all the time. Mm-hmm. I think that's the Kane problem. <laughs> uh, Tristan. Uh, it's not just the, um, well, his relationship with his father is not just the source of his pain, but it's also the source of you know, what he sees as his code. The fact that um, he thinks he doesn't you know, harm people until they harm him first. His childhood is, uh, he's, he reads it as a story of, himself just being put upon by these external forces time and time and time again until he's finally able to get this this shield this armor and these powers to uh, to stop them he see he um he sees himself as being bullied as a child not by um by other kids at his school where he wasn't able to keep up with his studies um but by his father and by his uh, uh by his brother um like regardless of um, how much uh, how, how much of Kane is responsible for um, for his for his relationship with Charles or vice versa, that's certainly how he perceives it. Is um, just this the these elements out in the world just keep crashing into him over and over and over and again until he is able to put this armor on and not let and be me and not and not let himself be stopped by him. So let's take that and transition into the second key relationship. We've already started there with uh, his relationship with his stepbrother, uh, Charles Xavier. Mm. Bradley, do you want to share some of your thoughts on the Kane charles relationship? I know how much of a Professor X fan you are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I actually do think I... Um, I think in his way, Charles is not without empathy for Kane. I do think um, Anthony talked a bit about um, the nightmare scenario of anyone who has siblings of imagine growing up with them in your head all the time. Uh, and, and what's interesting about them as adults is that I, I think, I mean, Xavier has had time to like move past his traumas a bit more because they were different. Um, and he's in this place uh, kind of, uh, for a while where he's like, no, I want us to be friends. I want, uh, he has, he's have, has a much more optimistic look about the whole thing than Kane does. Kane's still in the place of hurt for a very long time. Um, and, um, specifically I remember like, um, I had to, uh, reread the Austin run, um, for this and early on, um, um, it's, it's, it's fun. It's good bonkers content for a lot of the characters. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so early on, um, uh, Kane goes something. He's he go, comes to stay at the um, institute, and uh, he's like, "We're not going to be friends if that's what you think is going to happen." And um, and Xavier says something. He's like, "Well, I'm eternally optimistic," and Kane's like, "Okay, okay fuck you." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of that's kind of reflective of their whole deal um where xavier is like oh no it's over now we're friends and, and kane's like it's not over for me <laughs> and uh and i don't know there's varying degrees of how much he's allowed to feel that way <laughs> absolutely uh who else has thoughts on the charles uh kane relationship i definitely have thoughts because we know we know without a shadow of a doubt that Charles treats Kane like he wore sweatpants to school that day. Like <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally their relationship because no matter what he does, whatever Kane does, Charles is never there in that supportive role. Be like, hey, dude, you just knocked yeah. out a whole building. What are you doing? Like we talked about this, like stop it. You can't- <laughs> You can't just do this anymore. And it's never the thing that Kane wants to hear because that's why he's so angry 
at him. It's like, you've been doing this to me for years. You know that these are my problems. You know that I'm like literally just like asking for help without really asking for help because my, my pride is about as big as this fucking element. Like it's, you see that relationship and in those moments where Charles could basically say, hey, let's talk about this. Let's understand. He will completely go opposite. And that was literally just shown in recently when um <laughs> uh, in Juggernaut's new new series where he gets hurt and Charles is like, hey, so we're on this island, you can't sit with us. I don't want to talk to you no more. Like it was just very much a, a discard of his brother that was so heartbreaking. And you kind of saw it coming and you didn't want it. And I think what mm-hmm. the, that, that whole dichotomy is that Charles never got him and never once said, maybe I should. And I think Kane has spent a large majority of his life acting out so he can get his brother's approval. And again, codependency, emotional abandonment, all of the things that kind of are there and just been littered throughout the years has been sitting in front of everyone's face and no one has bothered to ask why. Anyone else? It's, it's interesting because he, Charles was in his brain. And you're absolutely right that he didn't, um, he doesn't know him. He doesn't know what he's like. He doesn't care to know his motivations or understand him in any way. Mm -hmm. But he's been looking at him and judging him from the inside without the desire to know him or cherish him as a person. Or you ask him to be fixed. Like, hey, I have the ability to kind of fix this trauma. You want me to do it? (laughs) No, and you won't even offer. You won't even offer. It's like... Which I uh, think. And, I mean, my family's. Yeah. I, I, I go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was just gonna say, like, um, I'm my family is mixed, a uh, blended family. So my sister and um, brother and I are both adopted and fostered, and I refer to my sister even though she's not biological. She's my sister. Um, we grew up together. We are siblings. Um, and Charles, in the issues that I was reading, was constantly, constantly saying, my stepbrother, no, he's not my brother, he's my stepbrother. Mm-hmm. And putting that distance, emotional distance, into words to other people um, in such a way that there's no way for Cain to get close to him, even if he wanted to. Anyway, go on. Just sorry, Arturo. It, it's, like, it's like Charles never really got over his own trauma with Cain. Mm-hmm. He... He, you know, for being so sanctimonious and for, you know, being the the great, you know, professor, uh, he really should deal with his with his baggage there with Cain because, yeah, I mean, he could forgive him and he could have given Juggernaut a place and a purpose and and you know try to get him on the good fight a long time ago, but I think Charles just really couldn't get over how he had been treated his own his own abuse. Anthony, go ahead. Uh, I just want to, I agree with all of that. Um, And this is not to bring in the lore of it all, but uh, one of the cool things we do eventually find out in that new Excalibur run is that um, when Sidorak summoned the two of them to the the temple, uh, who he actually wanted was Charles. That mm-hmm. to Sidorak, Charles is the avatar of rage that he thinks is most promising. Um and similarly, Sidorak is like, and look at how right I was, because as soon as he became Onslaught, look at what a petty little jerk he was. Like <laughs> the first thing Onslaught does is go after Kane. And and Sidorak, and Sidorak specifically says, not Apocalypse, not Sebastian Shaw, not any of these, like not the Shadow King. He goes after Kane. That's the first thing mm-hmm. an empowered Charles, that's the first person an empowered Charles wants to hurt. Um, so yeah, I do think there's, I don't want to like overdo it i Kane's emotional responses are not great as a child either but um there's nothing kane can do to charles that is worse than what charles is doing to kane right and uh not to like preface my own uh defense in a moment but that first appearance of the juggernaut is from kane's perspective his stepbrother left him in ruins for years having done nothing except changed like he doesn't he doesn't try to hurt him or anything he just gets buried and he's leaves him buried he's like thank god i'm done with kane 
he reemerges and finds his brother has now stolen all his wealth, turned the mansion into a school and tried to lock him out. Like he's changed the locks. (laughs) (laughs) That's all he's done. And that issue is just Kane trying to get back into his own damn house. Like that's the origin story of the juggernaut. (laughs) It drives me crazy when I think about how horrible his life has been. Beautiful. I, uh, I, I'm filled with so many thoughts. Uh, let's move on to the third relationship that's key. Uh, and Leah, will you start us off here? Tell us your thoughts about Kane's connection to Sidorak or his relationship with him. Um, I think that most recently, what I found most intriguing about it in uh, the recent comics is the fact that Kane fought Sidorak for his own power back and, you know, to get out from under the, the yoke of Sidorak specifically. And he even threatens, you know, like I'm going to find the eight gems that it requires for me to come kick your ass in space. And then I'm going to be done with you once and for all, but keep the power. And I thought Mm -hmm. that was really rad because after, you know, everything that he's been through uh, and being under the thrall of this, um, and not knowing how to like wield his powers um, of his own accord and being a vessel of rage for some distant cosmic God, you know, him being like, I'm going to fight God and I'm going to win and I'm going to keep this power for myself and do what I want. Like that was a really empowering moment of self-actualization. And I, I think we're still seeing, you know, kind of, that journey of his own sort of self-actualization with the unstoppables now. There's a, I, I was tempted to look for like a Thor Odin connection between Cain and Sidorak. It's the, you know, the godly presence who's granting the power, but it doesn't fit. It's much more like a Johnny blaze with Mephisto kind of deal, right? Like he's, mm-hmm. he's sold his soul to the devil who now wants to manipulate him constantly. And he's seeking to find a way out of that, but constantly gets sucked back in. And I feel like every writer who takes Juggernaut on a new journey is either trying to find a way to separate him from Sidorak or get him back to Sidorak so that he can mm-hmm. either be a hero or this rage demon again. And it's it's a really interesting balance. But I also think Sidorak kind of represents the father figure for Kane in some ways. There's a piece of him that desperately wants that approval and there's no way to ever get it because Sidorak does not have human compassion <laughs> at any level. Right. Well, well I mean, not to go to the obvious sorry. thing, Oh, sorry. Uh, Anthony, you know, no, sorry. sorry, Anthony. Yeah, I, I, I was piggybacking off of Chad's uh, thought. Remember the issues of Amazing X-Men, the Once the Future Juggernaut? Yes. That went into that idea of like what Sidorak was about and the fact that he was brought about because he wanted the world to worship him. And he thought that that was his form of love. And he was looking for an avatar to show them that. And then somehow that got manipulated into showing love through chaos and and destruction. Like that's how I showed my love. I beat you. That shit right there (laughs) is the connection from him and his father versus Mm -hmm. him and the possibility and always the going back to Sidorak because he's like, yeah, I was peaceful, but I kind of still need this because it's the thing that makes me. Uh, Anthony. Um, I was just going to say the, the very obvious thing. I'll just say it because that's it's good for someone to say it. Um, his name is Cain Marco because he's meant to conjure <laughs> up the mark of Cain, right? Like he's meant to conjure up yep. that story. And one, one of the things that's interesting about that story and I think really speaks to Cain's psychology is God rejects him first, right? Like the two brothers offer their offerings to God and God likes Abel's offering better and then Cain kills him, right? Like that's his motivation. And there is a way um, to go to this idea of like the God question that's happening here. Like it would be so infuriating to come back from being buried in that rubble and see how sainted your brother has become like this like world celebrity fighting for the cause of mutant rights. And like, all he wants is to show what a piece of shit Charles Xavier is like (laughs) that would make him feel so much better, I think. And like that primal need to just smash that dome of his with a rock. I understand completely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I really like the idea of like, 
Sidorak being, well, God doesn't love you, but I, at least the demon will, right? Like at least something will give you the, um, first of all, the power, but also, yeah, to Andre's point, like this horrible collapse of love and rage into the same concept is really neat to think about. And give you the armor to not feel anything. Yeah. Passion, pain, anything that could hurt you, you won't feel anymore. The armor takes away... The armor takes away his vulnerability. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah. It's fascinating. One thing <laughs> that I thought of, um, just like going over my section, because Cain loses the power, I think, twice, is in that same vein, the power and Sidorak kind of become an addiction for Cain. They take away so many of his problems or fears, but then he pays like a really high cost for it. And he wants he wants the good things without you know the influence of Sidorak, but you know that's sort of a hard deal to get to. Mm-hmm. So let's introduce his fourth key relationship. Although we're certainly going to talk about that in our presentations today, and let's hear just some of your preliminary thoughts on Kane's connection to uh, Black Tom. Arturo, will you start us out on that one? What are your thoughts on the Kane Black Tom relationship? I mean, wow, like uh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> One of my one of my favorite uh, gay crime dads in in all of Marvel, uh, you know Teresa's crime dads. Um, I I love their relationship. I, I know it's 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 uh, it's problematic and and codependent and a bit toxic, um, but it's also there's also a sweetness to it. Like yeah, like there's a here's the thing about Kane Marco is despite this you know, these nearly, you know, godlike powers, he has no interest really in learning anything more about sorcery. There's not a lot of depth there. He's not the one that's ever really coming (laughs) up with like these big master stratagems. Like he needs Black Tom to kind of give him direction and purpose. And, and, uh, and Black Tom also gives him a, a sense of camaraderie that he just doesn't get anywhere from, from anyone else. Um, there's a lot of times where you see Kane portrayed kind of as just a big goon, uh, you know, hired out by Dr. Doom, by, uh, Red Skull. Like there's times where he's, you know, contracted out like that, but he's never the one that's, that's, that's coming up with something diabolical. Um, and he's not, and he doesn't really establish friendships or, or relationships with, with folks easily, except for Black Tom. And uh, yeah, it's it's the kind of it's the kind of thing that, as a kid reading their their relationship, I I just had them paired off. I didn't see it as a gay thing at the time, uh, but I also didn't really see Pyro and Avalanche as a gay thing. But I definitely saw them paired off, right? So whether they were best friends or roommates or or fucking. You know, it's, or roommates. Uh, it, yeah, yeah, roommates. They <laughs> were roommates. Said they were very good friends. <laughs> they were roommates. Friends. <laughs> you know, uh, pillow friends is the is is one term for it. Um, you know, it, it's just it, there's a purity to it, and there's something where when Kane, when Black Tom needs Kane, Kane will move heaven and earth to help him, and it's sweet. Beautiful. Uh, I, we're going to offer a lot of thoughts on the Black, Tain, Black, Black Tom Kane uh, connection in our histories, but any other preliminary thoughts before we begin the trial? They just get hotter and hotter. <laughs> <laughs> just um, like listeners, if you have not seen yet the, uh, the, the X-Men Unlimited that Fabian Ciesa is writing right now, do yourself a favor and go check it out immediately because there is a reunion between Black Tom and and Kane that is just the sweetest thing and it just makes me so happy. Yeah, my notes that I wrote for like each issue that I read for this, um, my notes on that issue were I love all the hugging. I'm gonna get very sober and serious for just a second. I know we're talking about a fictional character. Uh, in the last five or six years of my life, I devoted a significant portion of my love, which is now going toward this podcast, toward making a documentary called Dog Valley. 
Uh, it's about a young gay man who was murdered here in Utah by these two men. And it's a really brutal, horrible hate crime. And I like went through the crime scene photos and I interviewed the cops and the families. It's an unspeakable trauma. And I formed an opinion of the two men who committed this crime. And the crime is horrific and horrible, horrible, horrible. But then I started getting to know the murderers and their families. And I started seeing a bigger picture. I started looking into the motivations of where they've come from and what's happened in their lives ever since. And there's more complexity to the story. So I know this is a fictional character, but Juggernaut is undoubtedly someone who has done some really unspeakable things. And there's a lot of trauma and accountability for that. And my mantra for therapy when I'm working with clients is compassion balanced by accountability. We can find reasons for motivation, but also you're still fucking responsible for what you've done. And there has to be ownership of that. So as we are going into today's trial, we've broken up Juggernaut's extensive history into nine equal parts. There's nine people here. Uh, some of his sections will not be covered comprehensively, particularly those in which he's acting as a hero or those in which he's clearly being controlled by another entity, uh, Kurth. Uh, we'll talk about him when it comes to the, the serpent stuff. Um, but what we want to do is, is hold him accountable as we should. We are going to pause the trial of the Juggernaut there and put him on trial for his crimes in our next episode with our same amazing panel of all-stars as we review his chronology, his crimes, and vote on just how complicit he is. And uh, let me tell you, the content of the next episode mixed with this one will change your perspective on this character forever. We will see you guys back next time on Grey Malcolm Lane with the Trial of the Juggernaut Part 2.